Hi everyone, I'm James Whitaker, and I'd like to ask you to remove all the ferrous objects from about your person before I welcome you to this special MRI Safety Week edition of Conditional One, my occasional podcast focusing on all aspects of MRI safety. Everyone has dates that are significant to them, their birthday, an anniversary, Christmas, the 4th of July, the list is endless. In fact, every day of the year is important to someone for some reason. Living in New Zealand, a particularly significant date is the 25th of April. Way back in 1915, during the First World War, soldiers from Australia and New Zealand landed at Gallipoli, a peninsula of what is now Turkey but was then the Ottoman Empire, an ally of Germany at the time. What was meant to be a short campaign designed to prevent the Ottomans from taking any further part in the war ended up dragging on for over eight months. In that time, Over 8,700 Australians and 2,700 New Zealanders died in action. News of the invasion of Gallipoli had a profound impact here in New Zealand, as well as in Australia. And 25th of April soon became Anzac Day, the day on which they remembered all of those who died. Anzac Day was important not because the Gallipoli campaign was successful. It wasn't. But because of the impact it had on the community as a whole, and that is still as true today as it was then. But what has that got to do with MRI safety? Well, every year, in the last week of July, the international MRI community observes MRI Safety Week, in memory of the death of Michael Colombini, a six-year-old boy who died on the 29th of July 2001 after being struck during an MRI scan by a flying oxygen cylinder in New York. Why was Michael Colombini's death the catalyst for the MRI community? His wasn't the first MRI-related death, but it was the first death caused by a ferrous projectile in the MRI environment, and it sent shockwaves through the profession as a whole. There's something uniquely horrifying about the death of a child, and Michael Colombini's death triggered an outcry throughout the MRI community the wider medical community, and even the general population. I won't talk any more about Michael Colombini in this episode. Instead, if you would like to know more about the circumstances leading to his death, I'll direct you to episode one of this podcast, The Colombini Incident, which discusses the lead-up to, the mistakes surrounding, and the aftermath of his death. What I will do in this episode is talk about those others who deserve to be remembered at this time, and the circumstances of their passing in MRI incidents, in the hopes their stories will help to prevent even one further such occurrence in the future. After all, the best mistakes to learn from are those made by other people. As regular listeners to this podcast will know, I'm a huge fan of pop culture, and sometimes the most profound thoughts can turn up in the unlikeliest of places. I was recently watching a favourite movie of mine, Hot Fuzz, starring Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. In one scene, the main characters are discussing the impact of language following what appears to be a car crash. They say it's no longer called a traffic accident because accident implies that no one is to blame. This is hugely relevant in MRI safety, not because pointing fingers and apportioning blame is the purpose of the exercise, but because injuries and deaths in MRI do not occur in a vacuum, 
and without exception are brought about by a mistake or process failure. So how common are fatal MRI safety incidents? Well, it's actually difficult to be sure. In 2017, McRobbie, Moore, Graves and Prince, in the third edition of their excellent textbook, MRI from Picture to Proton, stated that there had been 16 documented fatalities over 35 years of clinical MRI. And I hesitate to say that they've missed some, but that number feels very low to me. In 2019, Delfino, Cranach, and Flesher wrote a 10-year review of MRI-related adverse incidents gleaned from the FDA database between 2008 and 2017 that contained 12 death reports from 10 separate incidents. Of those, only three were directly attributed to the MRI system, while the remainder were just unfortunate events where unwell patients died during or shortly after their scans for reasons unrelated. And as I'm about to tell you, there have unfortunately been a number of safety incidents since then. The first recorded MRI death that I could find occurred in late 1992, at least according to the authors of the paper describing the incident. I spoke about this case last episode, but I'm going to include a little more detail this time around. In San Antonio, Texas, a 74-year-old lady attended for a routine MRI examination. When she was screened prior to the examination, it was found that she had an intracranial aneurysm clip placed at another institution in 1978. The MRI was cancelled, and the patient was referred back to her doctor with CT scanning suggested as a possible alternative. The patient's family contacted the office of the neurosurgeon who placed the clip in 1978, and were told that a Yazagil clip had been placed on her mid-cerebral artery. The MRI centre then investigated this clip and found that there was no deflection in a magnetic field up to 1.89 Tesla, and the patient was then scheduled for the study. She attended for an MRI scan and was escorted into the scan room by a technologist. When she reached a distance of about four feet from the bore of the GE Cigna 1.5T scanner, she complained of a headache and was immediately removed from the scan room. Unfortunately, her condition worsened rapidly and she was intubated and transferred to CT. The scan revealed a large right-sided subarachnoid hemorrhage at or around the site of her previous aneurysm clip, and the patient died a day later. The following autopsy showed a tear in the wall of her mid-cerebral artery at the site of the previous clipping, and upon further investigation, it was found that the clip was not a Yazargil clip and was strongly ferromagnetic. The original neurosurgeon was consulted again, and the operative note from 1978 was obtained on microfilm, and it became clear that the clip was a very angle clip manufactured by Codman and Shirtliff. Up until the early 1990s, the presence of an intracranial aneurysm clip was a contraindication for MRI, as they were often strongly ferromagnetic, but the newer generation of aneurysm clips that were becoming common were MRI conditional, and so patients could be safely scanned with these clips in situ. The authors of the paper I read made the point that written identification of the aneurysm clip would have prevented this tragedy, and that verbal information regardless of source, should never be relied on. For our next case, we travel eight years forward in time and halfway round the world to Melbourne, Australia, in April 2000, where an elderly man died during an MRI scan 
due to a pacemaker malfunction. A statement from the Alfred Hospital claimed that the patient involved was asked twice if he had a pacemaker, but for some reason failed to disclose it. Prior to MRI, patients attending that site were given detailed forms containing 25 questions that were then double-checked verbally by an MRI technologist. While the statement doesn't confirm that it was the case on this occasion, they did say that one cause for concern regarded patients whose judgment may be impaired due to illness or drug treatment when questioned. As a result of this incident, the spokesman said that the Alfred Hospital was in the process of updating their systems to prevent a recurrence, and had a procedure in place whereby x-rays would be performed to discover if there were any foreign metal objects in cases where there was difficulty communicating with a patient for any reason. Unfortunately, for the next incident, we're not jumping forward seven years, not even seven months. In September of 2000, an English engineer named Paul Ambrose died during the installation of an MRI scanner in a New York hospital. From news reports, it appears that the superconducting magnet had not yet been energised and was being kept cool by liquid nitrogen. Paul was working in a trailer alongside the hospital and two of his co-workers realised that he hadn't left the trailer for some time. They went back inside and found him unconscious on the floor. They dragged him out of the trailer, but it was too late. He died of asphyxiation. The two rescuers, as well as four others in the vicinity, complained of lightheadedness and were taken to hospital and it appears that the cause of the incident was a leak in one of the liquid nitrogen tanks. A spokesman for GE Medical said that this was the first accident of its kind in GE Medical System's 17-year history with MRI scanners. The next incident is the one that everyone knows. Also occurring in New York State, the 2001 death of Michael Colombini was the wake-up call for MRI providers around the world. As I mentioned previously, if you'd like to learn more about this particularly horrifying event, please listen to episode one of this podcast, The Colombini Incident. This next incident was the first to really have an impact on me, as it occurred in the UK, and it was the first fatal incident that I was aware of at the time it happened. A former mayor of North Tyneside, by the name of Ethel Brown, though everyone knew her as Molly, died in Newcastle, in the north of England, in December 2003. In the weeks running up to her death, she'd been admitted to hospital twice, as she was having problems with walking, and suffered blackouts. She was referred for an MRI by a consultant physician at North Tyneside Hospital, who told the coroner at the inquest into her death that it had slipped his mind that she had a pacemaker. As in most places, a safety form needed to be completed before the scan could be carried out, and this was completed by a junior doctor due to Molly's mental state. This junior doctor failed to check Molly's notes and completed the form from memory even though she'd been personally writing in Molly's notes earlier that day. She too failed to recall Molly's pacemaker. The referral took three days to be processed, and in that time, neither the junior ward doctor nor any of the ward nursing staff picked up that Molly had a pacemaker. 
when Molly attended for her MRI scan, she was questioned by the MRI staff and denied having a pacemaker. And, as her doctors also neglected to mention it on any of her forms or paperwork, her previous imaging wasn't checked, and Molly was scanned. Only a few minutes into the procedure, Molly suffered a cardiac arrest, and despite 45 minutes of resuscitation, she could not be revived. This was a situation where mistakes were made by a number of different people, and if any one of the consultant physician, the junior doctors, or ward staff had checked back through her notes or prior imaging and noticed the pacemaker, Molly wouldn't have died. Morocco, 2010 This incident is a cautionary tale highlighting the risks of solo working, as well as the need to keep the scanning room as clear as possible. At the end of the working day on the 3rd of March, a field engineer was working alone, servicing the motor for the blower that passes air through the scanner bore. According to the FDA report, there were no witnesses to the event, but an investigating team determined the most likely scenario. What follows is a direct quote from the Maud database. The investigation team found that spare parts and tools were found at the operator console, indicating evidence that a service on the blower motor was being performed. The room size was reportedly small, however, further review of the room schematics showed that the room met installation requirements. A review of the photographs of the room setup demonstrated that the room was used for storage. For example, the photographs showed that phantoms were located on the floor and the phantom cart was stationed inside the room. Additionally, the screen room, especially at and behind the magnet, appeared to be cluttered with several items. It was also noted that the service path along the left side of the magnet was obstructed. Once the blower panel was removed, she followed procedures to keep the magnetic part of the panel away from the magnet. However, due to the size of the room and the clutter present at the time, the field engineer had to position herself between the panel and the magnet. The part weighed approximately 30 pounds, 14 kilos, which may suggest that she was carrying the panel with both hands with her back to the magnet as she proceeded to walk out of the room. The phantom cart was positioned such that the field engineer had to manoeuvre around the cart. During this manoeuvre, something occurred that caused the field engineer to position herself closer to the magnet that consequently led the panel and the field engineer to be pulled towards the magnet. It is unknown what occurred that affected the field engineer's proximity to the magnet. The panel, however, would have had significant force to incapacitate and trap the field engineer as it reached the magnet. This was consistent with the cause of death, as reported by the Moroccan examiner. Based on the investigation, the probable cause of the event was a combination of the small room containing obstructions during the service activity, and magnetic materials falling in close proximity to the magnet. There is another case in the FDA database of an engineer perishing following an MRI safety incident. In that case, the engineer suffered serious cryogen burns and died under anaesthetic during a subsequent surgery. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to clarify the exact date of this incident, so if anyone has further information on that case, please let me know by emailing podcast at conditional1.com. Next, we move to Colombo. Sri Lanka. February 2013. On February the 7th, 
five-year-old Budi Ratnayaki was admitted to hospital following an epileptic seizure. Nearly a week later, on the 13th, Budi was having an MRI scan under anaesthetic. Reports as to what happened next vary, but apparently, following a loud bang, Budi was found to have turned blue and was rushed to intensive care. Unfortunately, she could not be revived. It's unclear as to what caused the bang, with one report saying it was a burst oxygen pipe, and another suggesting that the MRI scanner might have quenched, potentially displacing oxygen. Reports simply state that her post-mortem found that she died of asphyxiation. Details are a little bit vague in this case, so if anyone listening to this podcast has more information, again, please email me. This next incident took place in Mumbai, India, in 2018, and it's particularly shocking because the victim wasn't a patient or a member of staff or field engineer, but a family member. Rajesh Maru was at the hospital to help his brother-in-law's mother, Lakshmi, who was having an MRI scan for suspected meningitis. Upon arrival at the MRI unit, they were asked to remove all their metal objects, but the orderly who'd wheeled Lakshmi down from the ward told the family that they should take an oxygen cylinder into the room, as the patient would need oxygen during the scan. The family queried it, but the orderly said the machine wasn't on, and Rajesh took the cylinder into the room. When it entered the fringe field, the cylinder was pulled towards the scanner, and Rajesh got dragged along. According to police reports, Rajesh was pinned to the scanner by the oxygen cylinder. During attempts to free him, one of his fingers was severed, and then the regulator on the oxygen cylinder came loose, flooding Rajesh's lungs with pressurised oxygen which is what ultimately caused his death, according to his post-mortem. Terrifying, isn't it, that even 17 years after the death of Michael Colombini, people were still being killed by projectiles in MRI scanners. I'd like to tell you that this was an isolated incident, that while lightning might strike twice, it surely couldn't strike a third time. However, I can't. 2021 was a very bad year for MRI fatalities, with not one, but two incidents, though one of them was only tangentially related to MRI. In September, at the University of Utah Hospital in Salt Lake City, a worker by the name of Pat Bailey was killed when an MRI scanner being moved from the fourth to first floor of the hospital fell from its crane, crushing him. The following month, On October the 18th, a South Korean man was killed by an oxygen cylinder during an MRI scan in Seoul. The oxygen cylinder was apparently on the trolley in which the patient was brought into the MRI suite, and during the scan it shifted to bring it within the fringe field. It then became a projectile and struck the 60-year-old man in the bore, killing him. that brings us to 2023, to another very unusual case that I would imagine most people working in MRI are aware of, if only because of how bizarre the circumstances surrounding this incident are. In January, 
Leandro Matias de Neves, a lawyer from Sao Paulo, Brazil, accompanied his mother to her MRI appointment. Upon arrival, staff followed protocol and asked Neves and his mother to remove all metal objects from their persons. Neves failed to disclose the pistol that he carried as a concealed weapon, and during the scan the pistol was pulled from his waistband and discharged accidentally, firing into his stomach. Following the gunshot, he was rushed to hospital, but unfortunately he died nearly three weeks later, on the 6th of February. This isn't the first incident where a firearm has been brought into an MRI scanner and accidentally discharged, though it is the first fatality caused by one. And that brings us up to date. Safety Week 2023. This episode was actually quite difficult to make, not only because of the stories themselves, but because of the sheer number of other news stories relating to MRI safety incidents, with injuries, lawsuits and more. There's never anything on the internet about MRI technologists safely scans patients without incident. That's not news. There's an expectation that we get it right all the time. With more scanners and technologies designed to make our examinations faster, we're scanning more patients than ever before. With that in mind, and the ever-increasing complexity of implants, I feel that unfortunately, we're a long way from being MRI safe. And I wonder if we'll ever get there. And with that cheerful thought, I'll bid you farewell. As always, I'd like to say thank you to purpleplanet.com for the use of their music and thank Janelle Whitaker for proofreading and graphic design. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast or ideas for future episodes of Conditional One, please get in touch with me. My email address is podcast at conditionalone.com. And remember, if anyone ever tells you that being an MRI technologist isn't rocket science, tell them no but it is nuclear physics. Goodbye.